There are two terms that are used loosely and interchangeably in Jewish philosophy, and both of them are most probably very critical terms if anything that a Jew believes should mean anything to them and should have any real significance. The two terms are the terms emuna and bitachon. These are the two terms. Now, the term emuna, bitachon, bitachon. I'll explain what each term means. Okay? Yeah, you're going to have to get used to this English-speaking fellow. In any case, or American-speaking fellow, I wouldn't even say English-speaking. In any case, emuna, emuna comes from the root word emun, which means to establish, to confirm. And in regards to Jewish philosophy, then what the word emuna means is the confirmation, the inner sense of certainty on some level of the fact that God exists. Now, it's not only, when we talk about emuna, we're not only talking about emuna in terms of God's existence, but it also talks about some of the relevant definitions of God's existence. Does God exist the way humans exist? Does God exist in some different form? So there are many, many uh, parts, subcategories to the concept of Amuna, but the most fundamental is the reality that there is in fact this God and what are his characteristics, what are his qualities, what are his levels of involvement or lack of involvement in this world, etc., etc. And in a general way, anything that is a definition of God onto himself or in relationship to his world would fall under the categories of emuna. Okay. Now, bitachon, okay, bitachon, it translated, it comes from the root word betach, which means trust and security. And anybody can see that when we're talking about bitachon, if the root word is betach, then you're really describing a human condition. You're describing a condition that a person is at peace. He feels secure about something. Okay, he feels secure about something. And the way these two terms relate to each other is that if I have emuna in the things that God is, that can generate within me a sense of peace and a sense of security. So what bitachon really is, is not a... Uh, um, a synonym for, for emuna, but it is the end result of a person that has emuna, a person who has a certain, the belief in all of the different aspects of what God is, finds himself going through life instead of biting his nails and always being anxious and always having the jitters and always worrying and so on and so forth. He finds himself in a state in which he feels secure, he feels confident that whatever will take place is, is meant for the good because God is the, is the source of everything that happens in our lives, the decider of the things that happens in my life. So not, it doesn't necessarily mean that everything is going to be hunky-dory for me, but it does mean that it's, everything has a purpose for me and a meaning for me. And once I know that, while I might on some level be concerned about what it is that's going to happen that's going to be so meaningful and purposeful for me, however I know that I am not being, so to speak, cast to the, 
to the ocean and I'm, I'm being disregarded. No, the things that are happening are things that need to happen, are meaningful to happen, and therefore, while I don't know how I'll necessarily react to some of the less than joyful things that might happen in the course of these decisions. However, there's a confidence that there's purpose to everything that's happening. So really what bitachon is, is the emotional outgrowth that a person can live with a sense of security and peace based upon a foundation of emunah. Okay? So emunah is the foundation, it is the belief system, that a person comes to, and we'll discuss all of the ways that a person comes to this belief system, bitachon is the end result of what comes out of it. Now, this is a very significant thing. This is a very significant thing, and I'll tell you why. Because very often, very often the word bitachon, which means trust, is misinterpreted. It's misinterpreted. It's misinterpreted on two levels. One level that it's misinterpreted on is that people think that bitachon, thank you very much, people think, people think that bitachon, that, that, uh, people think that bitachon is, is the, a, a philosophical statement that a person must be optimistic. You know, it's, uh, in other words, between optimism and pessimism, Jewish philosophy supports optimism. Now, and therefore many people, when they're um, unsure of where their destiny is going to take them, they say to themselves, I have bitachon in Hashem, I have trust in God, and I know that it's going to work out the way that I want it to. This is not bitachon. This is playing the game of being a prophet when you're not a prophet. Bitachon is not prophecy. Bitachon is not even knowing what's going to happen. But whatever it will be that will happen is purposeful and good for me, if not in the short term, but certainly in the long term. Now, that's one common mistake that's made about bitachon. The other common, in other words, to say that it's prophecy that everything is going to work out the way I want it to. That's one mistake. That's not what bitachon is. Bitachon is knowing that God is the master of the universe and believing all of the things that I believe God to be, if things should be different, they would be, they will be different, and if things, and that which is ultimately for my good is what's going to take place. Certainly from God's side of it. We don't necessarily make good decisions for ourselves, but from God's side of it, God makes the decisions that are ultimately good for us. I know that's a can of worms and there's a lot that we need to talk about, in that regard, but we'll leave that for right now. We don't have to jump into that immediately. The second mistake that's made, the second mistake that's, <clears throat> so that's one, that's one thing, the bitachin business. It's not, it's not trust. Now, the second mistake that's made about bitachin is like this. People think, okay, that the word bitach, that bitachin means that a person has to some ha have some kind of blind reliance on God. Okay? That the word trust by definition means that if you would leave it up to my understanding, I'm very nervous. So what can I do? I'm just driving myself crazy with nervousness. 
So I decide to myself, I'll ditch all of this nervousness and I'll become this great person and have bitachon in Hashem. I'll have trust in God. And in other words, that people think that what bitachon is is some, some kind of heroic act by which I leave my brains behind and I leave all of my normal ways of, of intellectualizing and rationalizing things and I'm going to have bitachon. I'm going to just, you know, become carefree as a bird and not worry about anything. This is not bitachon. This is another mistake. Bitachon is only authentic to, uh, based upon how strong my emuna is. In other words, in other words, it's not reasonable for a person to have bitachon unless he has a foundation of emuna. Bitachon, trust and security, has to be reasonable. If you're an intelligent human being, being, you have a right to be nervous about something that logically isn't working out the right way. So where does bitachon come in? No, 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 I'm not going to be nervous. I'm going to have bitachon. Where does it come from? It has to come from a reasonable place. Bitachon is not encouraging man to be unreasonable. Everything says you should be nervous. But I'm not going to be nervous. I'm going to have bitachon. No, that's, that's, not, that's not reasonable. However, if I have a foundation of emuna, which means that I believe strongly certain things about God, so then it becomes reasonable to trust that God that I know. If I don't know God, why should I be trusting Him? So therefore, the concept of bitachon is built on some level of reasonable knowledge of God. If a person doesn't have any reasonable knowledge of God and doesn't see God or have any testimony of God rec God's record, why should he trust? Would you trust anybody else in your life without having any kind of a record or understanding of who the person is? I doubt it. Maybe you would trust them with an insignificant item, but you wouldn't trust to, to lend them $10 on the basis that they're going to come back tomorrow and pay it back to you. There has to be reasonable knowledge. And on reasonable knowledge, there can be reasonable trust. So therefore, the place to start is not to start talking about the issues of bitachon, but the place really to start is to, to start with the foundation, which is emunah. What is it that a Jew believes, and why is it that the Jew believes those things? That's really where we have to begin from. And therefore, what we're going to dedicate ourselves to is what is it that we believe in relationship to God? What, what are the beliefs that we have in relationship to God? What is that emunah? And maybe more important than even what the emunah is, is how can we come to believing those things? How can we come to believing those things? Are there techniques? Are there things that we can do? Or do we just sit back one afternoon in our couches and make some kind of an arbitrary decision if it feels right or doesn't feel right? Okay? This is really the, the subject that we need to deal with. Now, one of the most important places to start Okay, and, and I'm, I'm fond of saying this at the beginning of a philosophy class that you shouldn't think 
that what we're doing here in terms of trying to unravel what are the belief systems and what are the techniques by which we come to really believe these things and understand them, we shouldn't think that this is elementary stuff. The reality is that the subject that we're going to deal with over the next four or five weeks is really the calling of our lives. And it can take a lifetime for a person to really reach a real meaningful place of emuna. It's not as if it's not as if one morning after going through a six-week course with Rabbi Kersner on Jewish philosophy, you wake up one morning and say, all in all, it makes sense, I believe. Now let's move on to the next thing. The reality is that we're taught that there are certain mitzvot, there are certain positive commands in the Torah that a person is required to be preoccupied with them all the time. The love of God, the reverence and respect for God, things like that. And Amongst those, the first and foremost is belief in God. These are referred to as mitzvot to mediot, constant mitzvot. Okay, that's what they're called. They're called constant. In other words, that a person is always involved in them. Where do we learn that there's a mitzvah to believe in God? We learn it. It's the first of the Ten Commandments. Anochi Hashem Elokecha. I am your God who has taken you out of Egypt the existence of God, the God of history. And the Rambam, Maimonides, teaches us that this is a positive command that a person should always be preoccupied with belief in God. Now, what does that mean exactly? So the commentaries explain that it's very conceivable that a person comes to a place where he says, okay, all in all, I believe. So as he fulfilled the mitzvah of belief in God and now he's finished with it and every morning he just wakes up and says I'll refer to my notes of yesterday and it seems that I still believe. So the commentaries say no. A person is required to occupy his mind and his heart every day with new material or with looking into the old material in a deeper way to come up to the realization of God's existence and God's involvement the same way that he did the day before. In other words, it's a constant process. Now, the reason why it's a constant process is really part of what this world is all about. Psychologists have proven this to be true in terms of people that learn always by visual aids. That when a child only learns through visual aids all the time, the child slowly, it becomes more difficult for the child to learn things conceptually. Conceptualization becomes more difficult. There's a whole discussion in regards to t television and uh, how much television and how the child will, will suffer in his conceptual abilities because he gets acquainted with taking in data and information all through vision and therefore the whole realm of relating to some form of reality through conceptualization is not one of the processes that becomes sharpened in the child and the child will have more and more difficulty with it over time. There have been many studies about this in regards to television in particular. Now, the same thing is true in regards to God. 
You see, most of the stimuli and most of the information that we gather from our world comes to us visually. And when we talk about God, we talk about a God that we cannot see. We talk about a God that we cannot touch and that we cannot feel. All of our associations with reality are the associations of the physical world that confirm reality to us in physical ways. And therefore, in our own minds and in our own processes by which we process the material of reality, we become tremendous supporters that reality is only that which one sees, that which one can conceptualize, that which one can perceive of and can understand and sense, but that cannot be seen, who says? And therefore, the mitzvah of Amunah, the mitzvah of believing in God, is a constant one. Recognizing the place that we are in this world, being a world in which all of the stimuli are actual physical things, the Torah recognizes that no matter how true the existence of God, God might be, but if a person doesn't train themselves in the processes of finding those subtle realities on a daily basis, they will go out of his realm of reality simply because he's not used to the process of the conceptualization. In other words, if everything in my life is reality for me, not through conceptualization, and not through, not through perception, but through visualization and through sensory things, so then God will become absent from my life, not because of any kind of philosophical premises or theological debate. He'll just become more and more remote because that sharpness of sensitivity that needs to, that can, can perceive God is not being utilized by the human being. And therefore the Torah tells us that on a daily basis man has to preoccupy himself with some form of pursuing the different paths by which God becomes real from the, in a different sense of reality than the ones that man is common to. So the first thing is that Amuna is a constant mitzvah. It constantly has to be nourished, the nurtured. The process is one that man has to always be familiar with. He shouldn't lose contact with the strength of being able to conceptualize. And therefore, and the, if, if, I can, if I can interject over here, there was a great sage that didn't live so long ago, about 30, 35 years ago, he passed away. His name was the Chazonish. He wrote a book on Emunah. He wrote a book on Emunah and Bitachan, on belief and trust. And the beginning of his book, he says something very interesting about Emunah. He says, Emunah is like a piece of music. Okay, and we're going to explain this later on in the class today. He says, Emunah is like a, a very, very sophisticated piece of music. If there's a lot of no noise going on in the room, you don't pick up the music. And if you don't pay attention carefully, you won't hear the beauty of the music or the systems and the balances and so on and so forth that exist in the music. Emunah is a fine piece of music that is being played in our world. However, there has to be attention, and there are ways of listening, and there are ways of listening. And there's a certain amount of noise that very often comes into a person's life that doesn't allow the person to pay attention or to hear that music. 
And though the music is played, but the beauty of the music is lost upon the person if there's all that music around, all that noise around. So, so too in Amuna, we're talking about a level of reality that requires attention. It requires the sharpening of certain sensitivities in order to be able to perceive a level of reality okay, that is different than any other level of reality in as much as it needs focus and concentration to pick it up. doesn't mean that it's less of a reality. The beauty of a piece of music is, a beauty, is the beauty of a piece of music. The fact that I have to pay attention in order to pick up the beauty doesn't make it deficient. Quite to the contrary, sometimes the most beautiful things require the greatest amount of attention in order to pick up their beauty. And Amuna is one of those things. Amuna is, is, is a music that's being played in the universe, but how to be able to differentiate between the notes and then to be able to see how all of the different pieces are orchestrated together requires a certain amount of attention, looking out for certain signs that show you the balances that exist, and obviously also taking a lot of the noise out of the background in order to be able to listen to the music. Now, here's where we come to, to, um, to a very delicate point. Okay, we come to a very delicate point. The Torah teaches us, and this is something that if we pray, we say it twice a day. The Torah tells us in, in one of the portions of the Shema, the Torah tells us, okay, which is something we'll talk about. Obviously, if we talk about Amuna, we're going to talk about Shema. But the Torah tells us, do not go after, do not heed your heart. Don't go after your heart. And don't go after your ma. And, and don't go after your heart. And don't go after your eyes. Okay? Now, the Talmud says, what is this supposed to mean? Don't go after your heart and don't go after your eyes. So the simple definition of this is that very often a person is attracted to something superficially. You see something, okay, you look at it, you stare at it, you become obsessed with it, and then it kindles within you a level of desire, and then you run after it. Right? But it's really heart, it's eyes, heart, which connotates a superficial attraction a skin-deep attraction to something, and then you get caught up with it. You don't really see it, know it, understand it. So the Torah says that the kinds of things that you immediately become attracted to because one moment your eyes saw it and the next moment your heart desires it, be careful of those things. Because very often there's an outside glitter and inside there's precious little there. So the Torah says don't run after it in that way. The eye sees and then the heart desires. It doesn't mean that a person shouldn't pay attention to his heart in general. No, a person is supposed to pay attention to their heart. A person's supposed to be in contact with what they feel. But the Torah is identifying that there's sometimes a way that a person operates sight, emotion, action. Okay, where there isn't really a depth of perception before a person becomes involved. And the Torah says stay away from that. In any case, the Talmud gives uh, uh, another definition, and the Talmud says, don't go after your heart means don't buy into false philosophies. This is what the Talmud says. Now, this is very peculiar. This is very peculiar, because 
if the, if, if the Torah in fact meant don't buy into false philosophies, why would the Torah say don't listen to your heart? The Torah should say don't listen to your free thinking mind. Or the philosophy has to do with the mind. It has to do with thinking. It has to do with rationalizing. It has to do with intellectualization. It has to do with the logical process, hopefully. So if the Torah was telling us don't buy into false philosophy, the Torah should say don't go after your mind, don't go after your thinking without checking it out in depth. Why does the Torah say don't go after your heart if the subject is philosophy? So one interpretation which is very, very revealing and it's important to talk about at the beginning of a, of, of a class on Jewish philosophy is that Judaism maintains that were man intellectually honest and man wouldn't be prone and vulnerable to all kinds of subjectivities that are largely based in emotions, man would be able to logically come to a probability of God's existence. The problem does not lie in the logic. The problem very often lies in the fact that there are certain barriers that are, are established and set up that make it difficult for a person to believe in things because if I believe in this, that, and the other thing, it's going to seemingly threaten certain positions or certain emotional needs or certain psychological needs that I have. And therefore, the heart becomes a controller or a manipulator that what goes into the mind is only certain things. And other things are not let in because lest they come in and then all of a sudden I'm going to have to, my whole life is going to turn over. So what's going to be? So the best thing to do is protect. Don't let it in to begin with. And sometimes you do let it in, but you try to see it from your own vantage point so that it should fit all the other parts. So therefore, the interpretation goes like this. Yes, the Torah is saying don't buy into false philosophy. But the Torah, when the Torah says don't pay attention to your heart, the Torah is identifying what makes it possible to buy into false philosophy and what makes it sometimes so difficult to listen to the logic of a true philosophy. What makes it difficult is not logic. What makes it difficult is not the pure objective intellect. What makes it difficult very often is the heart. And therefore the Torah addresses the root of the problem. The root of the problem is the heart. Now, what does this mean on a practical basis for us? What it means on a practical basis for us is that when we begin a class that deals with emuna, when we deal with a class that begins with belief, we have to be able to create a mindset in our own lives that we are prepared on a provisional basis to let go okay, of of all attachments that could possibly influence or act as a barrier to our intellectual honesty. Now that doesn't mean that I'm expecting from you that you should all give up your favorite things for the next six weeks. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I'm talking about is to try to keep uh, uh, an inner discipline and an inner control of a level of objectivity in what's, what's taking place 
okay, so that you'll be able to hear the logic and the probability of God's existence and respond to it in a normal way that one would respond to that kind of logic. What comes to mind, okay, and a, a few of you might have heard this from me once before, is that very often you can give a lot of logical argumentation for an issue in philosophy, okay? And still the person argues and argues and argues and argues. And really, there's no point in continuing the dialogue simply because the person is looking for another need to be satisfied, not an intellectual one, but an emotional one. I'll tell you the, the example that came up not so long ago. Um, I was dealing with a very difficult subject that we're going to deal with later on in this class, why innocent people suffer, which is a major, major issue. And I went through different, you know, I went through different reasons and understandings and perspectives, you know, that went far beyond what most people think, that all, all suffering is, is uh, synonymous with punishment. And I went through a lot of stuff. and. At each junction in the class, I asked everybody in the class if they understood the arguments, and fought. everybody understood. At the end of the class, somebody raised their hand and said, but Rabbi. So I said, what do you mean, but? I w we went through this very methodically, reason by reason, and you didn't raise your hand. He says, yeah, I heard all of the reasons, but. So not being too familiar yet with teaching philosophy at that point, so I went over all the arguments again, and each one made sense again, but, but the same but at the end. And then I came to recognize that the problem was a completely different one. You could have all of the philosophical understandings of why suffering exists in the world, but it doesn't mean that you're emotionally comfortable with it. Intellectually, there can be a place for it. And you can understand the purposefulness of it. Does it mean that I'm emotionally comfortable? Does it mean that when I walk out of the room with all of the intellectual reasons for suffering that I have a smile on my face? And I turn to God and I say, okay, now that I intellectually understand suffering, I'm ready to celebrate suffering. Obviously not. There's an intellectual and philosophical need. There's an emotional need. And what we have to be able to recognize is that while both of them are legitimate, we shouldn't confuse one for the other. If it is satisfying logically and intellectually, then it's satisfying logically and intellectually. How we will deal with it emotionally is a legitimate subject. It is a legitimate need that man has, and it has to be dealt with. But we shouldn't, so to speak, say, oh, if I'm not comfortable, that means it's not logical. The fact that a person is not comfortable with an idea philosophically does not mean that it's not logical. There are many ideas that are perfectly log logical and reasonable, but they're not comfortable. So we have to distinguish between something being reasonable and at the same time not necessarily comfortable. Okay, now having said these two things, all right, having said these two things, let me say one last thing. Okay, let me say one last thing. Uh, in the form of an introduction, and then we'll start the text. Right. Throughout Jewish history, okay, throughout Jewish history, if you're at all familiar with Jewish history, you know that thousands, 
tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Jews throughout history really did things that when we look at them, we, we cannot fathom the, the heroism that people were prepared to exhibit for, their, for belief in God. This is historical fact. Okay? We don't have to sit here and figure out if it is or if it isn't. Anybody that knows Jewish history, unfortunately our history is replete with it, okay, knows that there were tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people that were prepared to do the unbelievable okay, in order to hold on to their belief in God in spite of the fact, in spite of the fact that God didn't seem to be anywhere near them in their lives. If it's the Holocaust, if it's the Crusades, if it's the pogroms that swept Europe, if whatever, whatever piece of history you want to look at, okay, this happens to be the reality. And you very often wonder, you very often wonder, where did the strength come from? Where did the strength come from? Let me take a simple example. Let me take a simple example. Not so, such a simple example. But let, let me take two examples. Let me take two examples from the Holocaust as, as to, for, for the sake of, of what I'm trying to portray here. Right? The story is told, okay, the story is told how in the concentration camps, how in the concentration camps, the rations that the Jews lived with were barely enough to keep them alive. Barely enough to keep them alive. Okay. Now, prior to, to Hanukkah, which is the festival of lights that celebrates a period of time in our history where we were able to rise up against the Greek Assyrians that had, that had captured us and had, had defamed the temple, we rose up and we were victorious and we went back into the temple, etc., etc., and therefore we have the Festival of Lights. So about six weeks, seven weeks before the Festival of the Lights, the prisoners in the concentration camp began saving the drops of margarine and the little pieces of potatoes that they got as rations from day to day in order to be able to create a candelabra out of potatoes and margarine in order to be able to burn the lights on the eight nights of Hanukkah. Right? Now, very creative, okay? But there's a much more basic question that has to be asked. Where does a Jew get the strength in the midst of such oppression facing the gates of hell and death to think about the Festival of Lights and celebrating some prior salvation in this kind of a situation. And to be able to give up the minimal rations of food in order to be able to do it. Where does it come from? Or the story which Hanukkah Teller tells over of how a whole group of people are being lined up all right. They're being lined up to be shot. Okay, and a woman goes out of the line together with her newborn baby and asks the German officer, 
for a knife. Right? Now, all of the other people on the line figured that what this mother was going to do, that this mother was going to, to commit suicide. Rather than to be shot, she was asking for a knife to commit suicide. And the German officer, with sadistic pleasure, agreed to give the, agreed to give the mother this knife and wanted to see what the mother would do with the knife. In any case, the story goes on, and then the story says that when the mother got the knife, she made a blessing, the blessing that you make before circumcision, and she circumcised her child. And she said that she wants to give the child back to God, okay, as a circumcised Jew. Now, you wonder to yourself, you wonder to yourself, where does that kind of, thinking about circumcision, thinking about God, thinking about returning somebody to God, circumcised as a Jew is supposed to be, like, like where does that all come from? So the answer is, to both of those things as examples, is that emuna, if belief is firmly rooted, a Jew lives in a totally different reality. Emuna is not something that's cerebrally abstract. It means that it becomes the reality in which the person lives. I'm suffering in the world, things are not going right in the world, things are horrendous in the world, but there's another reality. The other reality is God, my relationship to God, my belief that God is eternal and that there's something inside of me that is eternal in that relationship with God that transcends and supersedes anything that can take place in my life. So the strength isn't some kind of heroism that the person thought up so that afterwards history should write a glorious story about me. It's because the person that has a depth of emuna lives in a different reality. And therefore, what would seem to be the most obvious reality that wouldn't allow something that happened, I, I'm not living in that reality. And it was for that reason that Jews went into the gas chambers Okay, and they were able to dance in the gas chambers, Shema Yisrael. Why were they able to dance in the gas chambers, Shema Yisrael? The story is told over that once a German officer looked into the gas chambers and saw the Jews dancing Shema Yisrael, and he became so overtaken by the indestructible spirit of the Jew that he opened the gas chambers and he let them go free. Where does that come from? That comes, the, the concept being that once a person develops a sense of amuna, he lives in a different kind of reality. And therefore, the other forms of reality that would detract and draw him down and waste him away and erode him and water him down and wash him out and so on and so forth, that he transcends that entire thing and he lives in a, in a different place. And with this, we finally come to, to one thing. What distinguishes the spiritual vibrancy of one Jew over, over another? 
every Jew performs on, a, on some level. Okay? Every Jew performs on some level. Some less, some more. Some have it more in the heart. Some have it more in action. He's supposed to have a combination of both. But when you would say that one person is really spiritually vibrant and productive and growing and really reaching a depth of a relationship with God, and another is not necessarily there yet, if you would look at them, what distinguishes, truly distinguishes levels of spiritual vibrancy? The amount of things that people do? No. You know what distinguishes, really distinguishes the levels of spiritual vibrancy? How much emuna? How much belief is the foundation of what I'm doing? In other words, the higher the reality of emuna is, the greater the spiritual vibrancy. And the reason is very simple. It's not so simple, it's pretty deep. But if you listen carefully, you'll, you'll see the simplicity of it. What did I just say? That emuna is the man's journey to create a reality. Not to create a reality as much as to sense a reality that exists. That's a fine piece of music. Now, if I'm not in that reality, even if I perform as a Jew, but it's very artificial, because I live in, in a, I don't live in the reality of a relationship with God. I just believe in it cerebrally, but I'm not living in the reality of Amuna. But I perform as a Jew, so my performance is not coming forth from a play, uh, uh, from from my reality. My reality is this world. But what can I do? I was born Jewish or I have some kind of guilt complex about not acting Jewish, so therefore I do Jewish things. So my behavior is not really in sync with my reality. When behavior is not in sync with reality, it can't be vibrant. It can't go any place. However, the things that I do from a place of reality, they will have a vibrancy, because they come from the conviction of the reality that I'm living in. Vibrancy in, 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 in anything comes when there's a conviction that what I'm doing is being motivated from a place of reality. So the, the depth of the emuna, which is the depth of the, of the reality, is what makes the difference between two behaviors. Right? Because then the behavior is flowing from that place. What's the point of what I'm saying? The point of what I'm saying is that on one level, this class is quote-unquote beginner's philosophy. But on another level, this whole subject of Amuna is really a constant deepening process because it's finding, it's the responsibility and developing the techniques and the sharpness of sensitivities to not to cerebrally understand something, but to sense a level of reality. And the deeper that you sense that level of reality, the more natural and flowing, as opposed to artificial, will the Judaism be. So that's why Amuna really becomes the foundation upon which all the rest of Judaism lies. Right. Now, we're going to take a break for a few minutes, right? and uh, what I'll do right after the break is I'll invite questions on what I said, and then if, if we finish questions and we still have some time, We'll begin the text. In general, I also want to say that once we start the text, okay, I'd like the structure of the class to be, okay, to be a discussion. 
as opposed to a speech. All right? So as soon as we start the text, or even before we start the text in the questions and answers, I'd like people not to be afraid or feel threatened to ask anything. Not to be put off if we don't answer every question right away because there is a system of learning that requires that some things need time and need introductions before they can be answered properly. But I'd like everybody to feel free to raise the different questions and raise the different issues because after everything is said and done, we're trying to, to sense the music of that reality. Okay. Let's start with some questions, if there are. Yes. Okay, so just to explain the, the last point that I was trying to make. All right, the last point that I was trying to make was that you could have different people doing the same things, but the nature of what's accomplished by what they do in terms of, of them growing spiritually and their relationship with God becoming real and deep and meaningful has a lot to do with the level of amuna. The, the level of belief that the person possesses. Okay, that was the statement that I made. In other words, what distinguishes between two people in terms of the, the extent of how far-reaching the quality of their actions is, has a lot to do with the underlying amuna. The reason for that, the reason for that is because to the extent that a person has amuna, so he's living in, in, in a reality of a relationship with God and then his behaviors are flowing from the place that he's living in. When behavior flows from the place that a person is living in, it's logical to assume that there is going to be a vibrancy to them and that there's going to be a life to them. However, if a person is not performing with that basis of emunah, so, in other words, his reality is not God. His reality is not the spiritual stuff. He goes through the motions and he does the different things, but they're really not in synchronization with what his reality is. So there's a certain separation or a difference between, between what his reality is and what he does. Then it's almost as if his Judaism is something that's superimposed upon his life, as opposed to be something that's flowing from 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 where he's existing, so it's it's like artificial because it's not coming from the place where he's really at, and that's why it's not going to have the same punch. It's not going to have the same depth. It's not going to have the same vibrancy. So the 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 quality of how far-reaching uh, the 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 religious behavior of a person is is how much is it an expression of his being in that reality or not being in that reality. That's what I was explaining. I hope I explained it a little bit better now. Yes? Yeah, on the same point, I was taught um, that even if you're not doing it with like the belief in, you know, like praying with the body, because you're praying that you should do it anyway, like with the goal in mind so that eventually you'll be doing it for the right reason. But like if you 
you're doing the deed because you know that you're supposed to do it, even though it's not like because you have this ultimate relationship with God, it's still more worthwhile for you to do it, and ultimately you should hope that you should be doing it for the right reason. Okay. I mean, the, the remark that you're making is, is a perfectly valid one, and it's and very true. Okay, the distinction that you have to make between what you're saying and what I was saying is that what you're identifying is a process. Okay, in other words, what you're saying is that, in other words, until a person is in that place of amuna, okay, there's still a legitimacy, and beyond just being a legitimacy, also a requirement for a person to to do even in the absence of, of a depth of emunah. Uh, the person that says, I'm not going to do anything until I believe, okay, will find it hard ever to come to believing. Okay? There is an interesting interplay, which we're going to talk about. You know, I mentioned that there are techniques for belief and things like that. There is a very, very interesting interplay that exists between the philosophical realms of belief in God and the whole world of action, doing things that are proclamations of belief even before a person has a depth. Let me give you, let me give you an example of this. Let me give you an example of this. <clears throat> Let's say a person goes to a, a class in Jewish philosophy, and this is a rough example. We'll talk about it later on much more. Let's say a person goes to a class in Jewish philosophy, and Jewish philosophy teaches that the ultimate uh, provider of a livelihood to a person is God's decision as to how much a person is, is going to have or not have in life. That's the ultimate, God is the ultimate provider. However, God wants, in order for, for his, the livelihood that he provides man to be granted to man, that man should go through certain normal channels and normal techniques of this world so that the livelihood shouldn't be coming in some kind of a supernatural way. In other words, the ultimate giver, the ultimate provider of the livelihood is God. However, God says, but do the things that are normal to do in the physical world to procure, to be able to, 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 to make a living. But what it means basically is I go through motions, but it, it's God that is, is, is then giving me the livelihood. I'm going through the motions so that I shouldn't be living in some kind of a supernatural way that it's just you know, going to fall out of the heavens. So God says go through the channels. Okay? And the reason why God wants natural channels is a separate subject. But it's not the natural channels that make the money. It's God as the provider. Okay, now, I'm not going to go into this in great length now. I'm just using it as an example. So let's say a person hears this in a class. I'm just using this as an example. We'll talk long and hard about this a little bit later on in, this, in the series. Let's say a person goes to such a class, okay, and the teacher does a better job than I just did in convincing him. Okay? All right? So he walks out of the class intellectually believing okay, that God is the ultimate provider. And therefore, he's tempted to go into a wonderful deal. Okay? The trouble is it's a little dishonest. Okay? But if he, if he will go through with the deal, he'll, have money. he'll be on easy street for the next five years. Okay? Okay? So he says to himself, such a deal will never come up again. 
and uh, I'll be on Easy Street and it's so wonderful and so on and so forth and if I don't go into this deal I don't know if I'll ever have enough money and I'll have such a miserable time making a living I'm going to go ahead and do it okay? that's one option the other option is that he can say to himself like this listen I just came out of this class that says that God is the provider okay? and God is the provider doesn't lack all kinds of techniques of getting money to me okay and if God is the ultimate provider could it be that God wanted me to go use a channel that's not an honest channel it can't be so he says to himself yeah but when I came out of the class before I had this wonderful offer I believed the class but now that I have this wonderful offer I'm not so sure that what I learned in class is so true I can't be so sure to let this wonderful offer go by now if this person says to himself if this person says to himself I'm not completely sure if I, what I learned in class is true but I'm willing to go out on a limb <coughs> and believe it and not do the dishonest thing and he chooses not to do the dishonest thing this person after having made the choice and let this offer go by this person's belief in God as provider will be deepened why? because he took the belief from a cerebral place and he acted it out even if he wasn't necessarily completely sure of it but he was willing to to go out so to speak on a limb and give it flesh and bones actually make it come alive in a real way by using this world and making the belief come alive in a real way that actually deepens the person's perception of the belief now that's it's almost paradoxical the belief is something that's intellectual and what is supplying the depth of it something that I did or didn't do in the physical world how do the two worlds meet each other the cerebral world and the, and the f world of physical action but so is the way that God made his world that the things that we we actualize and do sometimes have a way of turning around and cultivating a depth of belief now if there wouldn't be any basis of belief to begin with so then it's questionable because you have nowhere to start from but very often some of the ways in which we, depth, we deepen belief is not by going to another philosophy class and another philosophy class and another philosophy I'm not convinced yet so I'll go to another course and another course and another course sometimes when a person is not totally convinced a person has to be willing to experiment with the belief and to see if after he actualizes the belief it, re it, it, it receives a depth okay so what you're saying is perfectly true if a person is not yet at a depth of belief so he says to himself I'm not going to do anything until you prove it it's guilty until proven innocent chances are that he won't ever come to a real place of a depth of belief okay so it's really a process I have to start off with some reasonable reason why I should experiment with it and then I should act out the experiment in some re integrated way in the physical world and after doing that I come back to being able to understand it deeper right? so it is a process what I was talking about was that looking you know just theoretically at what makes the difference between two human beings it's the depth of how much of that amuna becomes developed within the person yes but how, how exactly does doing something like deepen your depth or your, your belief in it because sometimes if you you're not sure if something's true and then you do it 
you do something that agrees with that, you'll you know you'll think to yourself afterwards, well, I, I did it, so I must believe it. But that's not really believing it. That's just sort of like a trick that's being played on you. So how exactly does okay. you really make you believe it, or how do you know? <coughs> okay. I mean, the question that you're asking is a very good question, okay? Because the reality is, is that behavior does many things, okay? Behavior can do many things. If a person does a behavior, however ne negative it is, long enough, he can develop a whole philosophy about why the behavior is, is correct and why maybe it's even a mitzvah, why it is even a positive command to do it. So behavior can do a lot of things, okay? There's no question about that. The, but the, the, the answer to what you're, what you're asking is like this. Every twist and turn that a person takes, okay, in Judaism, okay, is, is a form of communication between man and God. Okay, now, what I'm going to explain now is not the classical way, okay, that any religion and, and, and Judaism is perceived, okay? So it's going to be a little bit different than most probably what you ever, ever heard. But listen to it in, for, for the value that it's got, okay? Every single twist and turn that a person takes, okay, in Judaism is a form of communication, between man and God. Now let me explain what I'm saying. Okay? The commonly thought way of looking at religion, okay, and we've been influenced by our society to look at Judaism the same way. It's not, it's not, it's not peculiar to Judaism. It's something that we've applied to Judaism by learning it from the world. Is essentially we look at religion in general, okay, we look at it in, in, in a way that it's really not an expression, okay? It's really not an expression of anything except the fulfillment of an expectation and a duty of responsibility that God has thrown upon me. In other words, even to use the word relationship in regards to religion is something that I think is somewhat uh, peculiar to religion. I mean, relationship, there's a God up there. He created you. He's your boss. He's telling you what to do and what not to do. And go ahead and do it. And if you will, you'll be rewarded. And if you won't do it, you'll get it over the head. Don't ask too many questions. It's not your choice. And go ahead and finish. Okay? I mean, I'm saying it in very simplistic and very coarse terms, but uh, it's not that is certainly not an unfamiliar attitude of religion. But that's not what Judaism says religion is. What Judaism says religion is, is a process by which God gives man a way to live that the ultimate goal of that way to live is that man has a way of then understanding and perceiving God and therefore through the knowledge and the perception of God having a relationship with God. If that's the case, okay, and we'll talk a lot about that a little bit later on, if that's the case, if a Jew does anything, even with not being sure 
but he does it because he believes that this is what God wants him to do, what is the Jew really doing? <coughs> the Jew is really sending a message. He's sending a message to God and he's saying, okay, he's saying to God, I'm interested in understanding you. I'm interested in finding you. I'm interested in getting a better sense of what you're about. So whatever it is, it can be the tiniest, smallest thing, or it can be a very, very difficult and hard thing for me to do. But whatever it is that a person does, he's sending a message. Now, what happens is like this. Let's say a person is not completely sure of something that he learned in a Jewish philosophy class. He's not completely sure, but he's willing. He's willing to, tr he's willing to try to bring it to life. That it's not going to just sit in the cerebral habitat, but he's going to try to bring it to life. What he's really sending out is a tremendous message to God. He's sending out a message to God that I am willing, though I'm not completely sure who you are or that I'm interested in you, but I'm willing to meet you. I'm willing, I'm willing to, to, to give a look. You know, I spoke to you on the phone, and the way you sounded on the phone, I'm not so sure you're my type. But I'm willing to take the chance, okay, I'm willing to take the chance and look. If I would never be willing to take the chance, okay, you'll never find out if the person is or isn't. But if you're willing to take the chance, you open yourself up to the possibilities. Now, in God's regard, when God hears a communication from man, that man is willing to take a chance, God blesses the human being with a sharper sensitivity for reality. In other words, God reciprocates. In other words, what makes man more certain and gives man a greater depth of his belief after he goes out provisionally to do something is not just because I did it and once I do it I have to rationalize it. There is a, there is a give and take going on between man and God. Man has made a statement that even though I'm not sure I'm willing to do something in the pursuit of you, so God says, if man is willing to do something, even when he's unsure, how can I not open up for the person a way that he will be able to become more certain and more clear about who I am? So what it really is, is it's a, it's a form of communication. Let me give you an example of this. Okay? And I think it's, it's something that's very appropriate to talk about as an introduction to Jewish. One of the prime examples most probably one of the roots of Judaism is Abraham. All right? In terms of monotheism, belief in one God, going away from the worship of idols and of many gods, it's Avram. Now, we know that the uniqueness of Avram was that he didn't have anybody that taught him. Okay? Abraham had to come to it on his own. And Abraham had to come to it in spite of what the entire world believed. Belief is not something that is proven through quantity, it's proven through the quality of the argument. Okay? The fact that millions of people do something is not a philosophical argument of truth. So Abraham didn't pay attention to the masses. Okay? Whatever pressure mass puts on the human mind wasn't part of, of Abraham's philosophical repertoire. And Abraham went to explore and to find God, and he found God. Okay? Now the Zohar, who is the author of our Kabbalistic literature, our mystical literature, teaches us that Abraham wasn't, <laughs> didn't come to a total belief in God with all of the principles of belief until he was 75 years old. 
Now, you all think, oh, boy, <coughs> a 50-year, 60-year philosophy course. He must have been a little bit slow. Okay? Take into consideration what he had to deal with and his ancestry and everything else, and I think it's pretty fast. In any case, he was 75. Okay? So the commentaries say an interesting thing. The commentaries say like this. When did... There's an episode, a famous episode in Abraham's life. When Abraham was a child, his father insisted that he bows down to his idols. When he was a young child, okay, and he refused to. And his father was so angry with him that he took him to the king. The king at that time was Nimrod. And Nimrod told Abraham that if he doesn't... If he's making a lot of noise. If he doesn't, if he doesn't bow down... If he doesn't bow down to, the, to his father's idols, he's going to be put to death. He refused. And an attempt was made to put him to death, and God saved him. We refer to this in our prayers every morning. Now, this commentary says an interesting thing. The commentary says like this. Look at this. We're taught by the Zohar that Abraham wasn't sure about God and all of his beliefs in God till he was 75. Nevertheless, as a young child, he refused to bow down to his father's idols, even at the court, even if it meant dying for it. What does that, what does that mean? How's, how do you interpret that? Well, you're crazy. You don't even know what you're believing in, and you're ready to give up your life? So the commentaries say like this. It's a, phenomenal, uh, it's a phenomenal thing to think about. He said, Abraham might not have known yet completely what was true, but he knew what wasn't. And he wasn't prepared to bow down to what wasn't true. And he was willing to give his life not to bow down to what wasn't true. So the commentary ends off and says, it's little wonder that Abraham came to know the truth. Because since he was prepared to give his life not to bow down to what wasn't true, that was a form of communication. It was sending out a message. God, if you're out there, I'm looking for you. Okay? And therefore, a communication comes back to the person that opens up the person's eyes to be able to see more and more what he's really looking to see. A lot of the problems in an Amuna aren't because the facts aren't there. We're going to start learning the facts and we're going to talk about it a lot. It's not because the material isn't there. It's because man makes all kinds of decisions of how much to search and how much not to search, how much to see and how much to, to, to stay away from. It's not because the material isn't there, but, but the person has to search. And, and what happens when a person really works on searching for God is that he comes up with a clarity Okay, like the example that I gave about God as the provider. He comes up with a clarity, okay, that he's sure that this is not just a rationalization of his behavior, but that it's really a clarity of his behavior. He comes up to that, okay, because there's a, there's a give and take between man and God. And he can sense, we'll talk about this maybe in the next class, he can sense a level of intuitive truth in what's coming to him that distinguishes this from the normal rationalization that comes after behavior. 
right? There's a whole dimension, and this is not really the time to go into it, we'll have to save this for another time. We'll, we'll talk about it a lot. There's a whole dimension of belief, okay, that ultimately transcends intellect. In other words, in other words, a person goes through many of the intellectual channels and creates all kinds of probabilities and all kinds of arguments as to the probability of God's existence and so on and so forth. But that's not where man remains. Okay? Eventually man comes to a place that after he senses all of the probabilities, he reaches what I would consider even a deeper level of belief. The level of belief that he knows that it's true because every fiber of his body feels the truth of it. And, that, and that's, not, that's not anything that you can write on paper and it's not anything that you can argue out. And I'm not saying that that's the only level of belief that a, a person should have. A person needs to go through the different paths of, of, of intellect, of finding God through, through his intellect and through logic. However, that's not the rock bottom of belief. The rock bottom of belief is that after man makes these searches, okay, and becomes, makes a commitment to himself to be intellectually honest and is willing to go out on that limb, okay, on that provisional limb of searching out the possibility of God, then the person comes to a level of knowing God that, that really comes from the depth of his being a creature of God. And by virtue of his being a creature of God, having a sense of God's existence. Let me give you an example of this. I'm really jumping over what I wanted to cover in today's class. But once we got here, there must be a reason for it. Uh, let me give you an example of this. And this is, I'm using the story as a portrayal. Okay? If you, you know, you can haggle with the story, but the story says a very interesting message. And it has a lot to do, it has a lot to do with what we were talking about before when we were talking about the music of belief. Right? The Talmud tells a story, which you're going to think is a little bit peculiar now with sophisticated times. And the Talmud tells a story about a woman who had no morals. Okay? She had no morals. And, and uh, I guess there was no birth control in those days either. So she had many children. The Talmud says she had ten children, but only one from her husband. Only one from her husband. And the other nine children came from elsewhere. Now, one of her children followed in her footsteps. And as, 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 as a young teenager was following the same way of her mother. Right? And once her mother told her, okay, the Talmud tells over the story, the mother told the daughter, Okay, that you know, I know what I'm aware of what you're doing, and blah blah blah, and et cetera, et cetera. But you have to be more discreet about it. You can't be so open about it. It's not the 80s yet. You, you can't be so open about it. Okay. Now, little did did she know, okay, that her husband heard the entire discussion. Okay, her husband heard the entire discussion. Okay, and had heard how she told over to her daughter that only one of the children was a true child from this marriage. And a little while later, he took sick. I wouldn't blame him for taking sick. He took sick, and on his deathbed, he proclaimed that his entire inheritance should only go to his true child. He passed away from the world, 
And then the typical problems of inheritance took over. Who is the true child? Who is the true child? So they went to, to they went for a decision. They went to a Jewish court for a decision. What should we do? So the, the head of the court said a very interesting thing. The head of the court said that you should all go out to the cemetery. All ten children should go out to the cemetery where the father is buried. Each one should take a stick and bang on the grave and ask that the soul from the, ne from the next world should proclaim <coughs> who was the true child. Because from the next world, the person knows the truth which is another subject, it's not for now. Right? So they all went out to the gravesite, all desperate for this inheritance. The Gemara doesn't say how much it was worth, but uh, in any case, they all went out, they banged on the graves, <laughs> and no voices. Nothing's coming forth from the grave to identify who the true son is. So they all came back to the court, they said, you know, like, what kind of nonsense is this? You sent us out to the cemetery to knock on the grave. Well, what kind of baloney is this? So he looked them squarely in the eye and he said, did you all go? And they were certain that they all had gone, but upon closer observation, one of the ten had not gone. So the, the, the head of the court said, the one that didn't go is the son. Now, what's the interpretation of this story? The interpretation of the story is the following. To take a stick and to go out to the gravesite of your father and to bang on the grave because you want his money, okay, is something that's not exactly what we would call respectful. To go bang on a grave. The true son, without necessarily knowing it on any conscious intellectual level, couldn't bring himself to bang on his father's grave. And from that, the, son, the, the, the court derived that that must be the true son. Now, what does the story demonstrate? The story demonstrates, and I'm using the story as a portrayal. We can handle about the story. There are many different ways of defining the story. But, but what does it demonstrate? That there is a sense of connection between father and son, between creator and created, that is inherent in the fact that I am the created of this, of this entity. And if this is true, physically and biologically, as the story demonstrates, how much more so is it true in sense of our being the ultimate creation of God? In other words, there is, and this doesn't need intellect. The, the son didn't know if he was or if he wasn't. There wasn't even a logical pattern by which he could prove if he was or if he wasn't the son. What did he know? He was born into the world. Morally or immorally, what, what could he know? But there is a mark that is left of the creator on the created on a very, very deep level that tells the created that this is my creator. That's some of the fine music that we were talking about before. That's another one of the pieces of music. And you don't get to that piece of music before you go through a lot of the intellectual process and a lot, and go through being willing to go out on that limb and say, I'm willing to search for you, going out on that limb as Abraham went out on that limb and said, 
I don't know what's true, but I do know what's not true, and I'm not going to buy into things that are not true, even though I'm not sure of what is true yet. It's, it's all of those things that a person does in the pursuit, in the direction of belief, that ultimately get a person to begin hearing the music, the markings, the markings, okay, the indelible mark of creator upon created. <coughs> there are other ways of interpreting this also in Hasidus and in mysticism. This is explained a little bit differently. However you want to explain it, but this is, this is, part, of the, this is part of the fabric okay, of what Amuna is about. We'll talk about it more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've noticed in people like sometimes baptized to show them things. And sometimes what? Baptized to show them things. So people are like to be like to be with people. And you're not emotionally comfortable to face something or to discuss something. Um, like you said, is, it, is that because they're like intellectually not honest with themselves? <coughs> or, Uh, I would say two th there are two major things that, uh, that uh, get a person into a pattern of the nature that you're talking about. One of them is pain, and the second is a lack of familiarity. Okay? The, the obvious one is that people try to avoid pain. Okay? And very often, being in contact with feelings and with emotions and things like that entails a certain level of pain. And, and people are not interested in pain or people don't want pain. Nobody wants pain. So people go to very ex large extremes to do anything and everything to avoid pain, even if it's a denial of reality. Okay? I mean, in, in, most, it's ex in its most extreme forms, you have the drug addict. Okay? In, in less extreme forms and seemingly more sophisticated, it's all yeah, the psychological barriers and all of that stuff. Pain is one of them. It's not the only one, however. Another critical one is the lack of familiarity with. Uh, very often, for one reason or another, when, as a person is growing up, they're not allowed to process feelings properly. They're not allowed by their parents. Let's say their parents don't let them or their environment or different things that happened that they weren't given help to be able to deal with. Let's say as a young child, a sibling died, okay? And you were never allowed to, I'm just using one example randomly, okay? And you were, and you were never ever allowed <coughs> to express your feelings about it. And deep down you might even have felt guilty that you were in part responsible for the death of the sibling or something of that nature because maybe you were very jealous of that sibling and you wanted on a deeper level that the sibling should die and when the sibling finally did die you felt guilty that you had some part in wanting it to happen so much, etc., etc. Now, that's a very, very heavy thing to, to, to have to carry around, and very often people become very isolated, okay, with it, okay, and in order to cope with the, with the intensity of those kinds of feelings, they make a decision that they're not going to process feelings, period. 
I'm not going to process feelings. And then, and it becomes a pattern in life. And then when you grow up, even if it's, even if it would be to your advantage to process feelings in order to have a healthy relationship, you're just unfamiliar with it because early, much earlier on in life, you made a decision that the way to cope and the way to survive is by not letting the processing of, feeling, uh, of feelings. And that becomes your technique of survival. And that's what you become most, your sense of security comes by not processing feelings instead of by letting feelings be. Just using one example, but pain and lack of familiarity. Excuse me? Uh, it need, in most cases, it needs therapy. In most cases, it needs therapy. Certainly, if it's a deep-rooted thing that's based in, in, in earlier on in a person's life, uh, in most cases, it needs a therapy. Okay, now that I've turned from a teacher and a rabbi into, into a psychologist, I bid you farewell for today, and I'll see you, God willing, next Monday.